All right, welcome to the uh, to the Tuesday live stream. We are live right now with Dr. Sean McDowell, and let me explain to you what this video is going to be all about. I really like taking important issues that relate to the truth of Christianity and covering them in much more detail than you 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 generally can find online. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to dig into this detail of how the um, the persecution or martyrdom of the apostles weighs in on the resurrection of Christ, but we're going to do it from a specific angle. We're going to talk about a critic of the, this case for the persecution of the apostles, and we're going to respond to her work. And the critic is Candida Moss. Now, this is not personal against her in any way, shape, or form. Uh, not at all. We're, we're interacting with her work, not with her as a person. There's a big difference there. But Candida Moss is, is kind of like the person who a lot of skeptics and atheists, especially online, are looking to to build their case against Christianity. They're borrowing her work, they're quoting from her, they're mm. using her stuff. So when I can find someone who is the source for a whole lot of other people, then we can deal with a lot of people and their concerns and questions by addressing that source. So this is what we're doing, and I've brought uh, Dr. Sean McDowell on with us again. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, this yeah. is fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited to hear what you have to share. And uh, now explain to us real quick, just what, what kind of work have you done on this topic? Because I just want the audience to know that you've, you've specialized on this particular issue. Yeah, so this was the result of my doctoral dissertation at Southern Baptist, which I publish now with Rutledge Press, just a, a leading academic press. And it was a question that grabbed me when we were on a trip to Berkeley, had some atheists speaking to our students and a mythicist said to our group, you know, how do you know any apostles even died? And I sat there, Mike, and was like, huh, I should probably know the answer to that. I was like, this is a perfect doctoral dissertation. So I spent three years tracking down, studying, finding every single source and documentation, not to prove that they died as martyrs, not to prove the resurrection is true. That's not how you do doctoral level research. I actually wanted to know if this argument was any good, and if so, what's the most fair and best way to state it? And there were some surprises and also some fascinating things I discovered along the way. Yeah, and I've, I've read your book on this, and I, I was excited about it for that very reason. I thought, this is an important piece of evidence in the overall case for the resurrection. Okay, but while I believe the resurrection is true, that doesn't mean that I can make the case this way successfully. You know, and so, so I was curious to know, you know, what kind of uh, real solid ground do I have for saying that the apostles, not just that they suffered, but ultimately saying that we think they were sincere, they were not lying uh, or making up their claims about the their having experienced Christ risen from the dead. So um, how about you help us just understand, big picture, how does this thing weigh in on the evidence for the resurrection? Once the argument gets boiled down, why is the persecution or martyrdom of, of the apostles a factor in demonstrating the resurrection? Yeah, I'm really glad you started with this because I think there's been mistakes on very eager... Uh, apologists who haven't done their homework, mm -hmm. and also critics who have overly dismissed the fate of the apostles as being irrelevant. So I try to take in the book a middle ground and say, actually, the apostles' willingness to suffer and die doesn't prove that Christianity is true. It doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. It's simply one piece, an important piece, of a larger historical argument for the resurrection. And I think what it tells us is that they're sincere. They're not liars. They didn't make this up. They actually really believed that Jesus had appeared to them and were willing to die for it. So this argument, by the way, doesn't overturn the hallucination hypothesis. 
It doesn't overturn mass hysteria or bereavement experiences, mm-hmm. etc. It's not meant to. We'd have to go elsewhere for that. Challenge the idea that this is a big conspiracy they made up uh, and that they're lying about this. I find that hard to believe when I see their willingness to suffer distinctly that Jesus had risen from the grave and appeared to them. Yeah, so it functions not as the whole argument. It functions as a piece of the puzzle that is significant in uh, dealing with the sincerity of the apostles, whether or not they had made up this claim. So I think that that's important that we put it in that context. And this, again, this is what excites me, is saying, all right, let's take one piece of the puzzle and let's chase it down. Let's let's get to the nitty-gritty of it. Because I, like many others, initially was just saying, hey, um, you know, tradition tells us that we have these martyrdoms of the apostles. And then going, yeah, I would like to have a lot more information about that than just say tradition says and so what you've done is is take it to a a more uh, thoughtful and careful approach which then makes it a very important piece in a real case for the resurrection of christ so let's let's talk about uh candida masa's stuff a little bit you um uh, what would you say is is her in her book by the way it's called for those who are who are interested it's called the myth of persecution and it is in the video description there's a link to it if you'd like to get her book and check it out but what is her basic argument in this book so Candida Moss is a professor at University of Notre Dame, a smart scholar. She's outside of this book, written other books like Ancient Christian Martyrdom, which was really helpful in my doctoral research. So she's done a lot of work in this area. The myth of persecution was helpful to me in my research because it's more of a popular level book. And she distinctly goes after the claim that the apostles died as martyrs. And that this offers any evidence whatsoever for the truth of Christianity uh, in general or the resurrection in particular. So it's helpful in that regard. And essentially, she she's arguing, as best I understand it, that Christians now kind of have this persecution mindset. And she says a few times in the book that this persecution mindset causes them in ways to be intolerant and lack kindness towards those who are outsiders. So she's concerned that she thinks Christians have lashed out against many others in unchristian-like behavior because they have this persecution mindset that was invented in the early church. And a lot of this is in the second, third, fourth centuries uh, by people like Eusebius and different cities competing to have martyrdom claims and stories in these cities for power and control. And so she's concerned with how it's created Christian today to treat their neighbors and operate in the world because of this persecution mindset. Where I'm pushing back to the first century and saying, well, let's just look at the actual evidence. The apostles were persecuted and uh, if they died and what that shows for the resurrection. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, Christians could have a persecution complex even right now. But the question is, how does this relate to these early first century accounts before this stuff seems to have been developing? Um, so let's let's start, though, before we get into anything else, where you agree. Where, where would you say you agree with Candida Moss before we get into areas of disagreement? Because there, it's not it's not just a simple black and white issue here. There's a lot of different topics that are being covered, and there is overstatement and overreactions and exaggerations on the part of Christians in some cases. So what are the what are the things you'd like to say you agree with her on? So I appreciate you saying that. When I was doing my doctoral research, there was a pastor who was in my cohort, and I was telling him about my research, and he said, you're going to make a liar out of all of us. <laughs> and I paused, and I said, my goal is not to make a liar out of anybody on any side, but to get to the heart of what we know about the apostles. 
Now, what I think, what I think uh, Candida Moss has done well is she points out over and over again in her book that many people have a, a view of overstating how much persecution actually took place in the early church. I think in the minds of some Christians, I'm not sure I'd say it's all Christians, but certainly some, they have this idea that once Pentecost hit, you know, just shortly after Jesus ascends, all the way until Constantine, the Roman Empire was rooting out and ruthlessly murdering, killing, persecuting any Christian who possibly believed this because they were enemies of the state. So she's pushing back on that narrative and rightly saying it wasn't quite that simple. There really wasn't official persecution statewide until we get into the third, maybe early fourth centuries. So I think she's right to taper that back a little bit. Now, as we'll talk in the discussion, I think she maybe takes it a little bit too far. But I think that's a very fair point that she brings out. And by the way, this is no surprise to scholars. If you read the scholars on this, they all know this. But as you and I know, sometimes scholarly work doesn't, uh, you know, peter its way down to to lay folks, so to speak. Yeah, in fact, it's it's my opinion, having having been uh, sort of loosely informed on the topic and then slowly getting more and more informed over time as I studied the topic, I, I realized that a lot of people, when it comes to history in general, they have these really sort of exaggerated, one-sided, almost cartoony visions about the past. So when they, whether they're talking about mm. the Egyptians or talking about topics of slavery or they're talking about the persecution, that it tends to be these, this sort of paint, painting with a really wide brush uh, with really super high contrast, you know, of history. And there isn't really the nuance or the careful thought that goes into it. Because we look at our modern times and we go, look, things are complicated. Issues are complex mm. and they're varied. And so it, it mm. pays to get complex, although it seems that the end result, and I'm not speaking here to her book, but the end result that I see online from those quoting her book is they're just painting with the opposite wide brush. They're just they're they're overreacting against persecution instead of getting that nuanced view. That's my opinion, anyways. Um, so, what would you say is the evidence for persecution of Christians in the first century? <clears throat> well, I think we have a few sources for this. One, of course, would be in the New Testament, and Candida recognizes that across different books in the Bible there is an underlying theme of persecution. So one of the first things I did my doctoral research is I read every single New Testament book very carefully, marking every story or statement that Christians should expect, not just the word persecution, but to suffer for their faith. To, uh, in fact, to suffer for the name of uh, proclaiming the name of Christ. Mm -hmm. And what surprised me is how much I didn't realize this was a core theme. It's certainly in the Gospels. It's in Acts, it's in Hebrews, it's in James, it's in 1 John, it's in Peter, it's in Revelation. So when New, when New Testament historians look at ancient documents, they have a criteria called multiple attestation in terms of forms and of books that something appears in. And that Christians were at least paying a price because their beliefs put them at odds with a prevailing culture is one of the core themes in the entire New Testament. But then on top of that, you also see that from some of the earliest church fathers we have, like, say, Clement of Rome, from Ignatius, from Polycarp. The next generation picks up on this consistent theme that Christians were being persecuted for their faith. Now, you also see it in the writings of uh, Nero, which, of course, not the writings of Nero, but the time of Nero, written by Tacitus into the early 2nd century. We had that Christians were actually persecuted distinctly for proclaiming the name of Jesus. 
Now, we could talk about Nero. She has some pushback about that account that I'm not convinced of. But to answer your basic question, we have Christians that are biblical, Christians that are extra-biblical, and we have also non-Christians extra-biblical like Tacitus and Suetonius affirming that Christians were in opposition and paid a price for their beliefs. That's the evidence that there was some early persecution that was taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, she makes a distinction in her book between persecution and between prosecution. So Mm -hmm. persecution is when a group is singled out distinctly because of beliefs they hold and put to death or suffer for that. Prosecution is when there's a group of people that have beliefs that run up against the laws of the state. And she says, well, Christians were prosecuted, not persecuted. I don't want to die on the term, but the bottom line is where I think she's right. This is another area of common ground with us is that Christians held a belief that Jesus was God. Now, the problem that that came into with the Roman Empire is because this was a polytheistic culture. And so they had no problem if you worship different gods. But if you didn't worship the gods of the state, you were considered to being put the state in jeopardy, to have famine, to lose war, etc. So Christians wouldn't get on the bandwagon, so to speak, worship these other gods. So because of their religious beliefs within the state, Christians paid a price and ultimately, as we see in the time of Nero, become a scapegoat for their beliefs. So give, give us again, um, I might be getting ahead of our questions, but give us again, if you would, what was her definition of persecution one more time? Uh, well, the key point is she makes a distinction between persecution and between prosecution. So she would say the Roman Empire didn't single out Christians because of their beliefs in Jesus and make them suffer because of that belief. Rather, they had state beliefs that matched the Roman religious beliefs at the time, and Christianity would not get in line with them. Mm-hmm. So if there were any other belief system that wouldn't get in line, you'd see that same tension as well. Yeah, so this is where, at least at least to some people, I think a, a big point of disagreement might come in because we're going to say, boy, that that doesn't seem to me like these are mutually exclusive things, uh, persecution, prosecution. It's almost as though persecution, if done by government policy, is therefore not persecution anymore. Yeah, I I think the point that she's making is just simply that the Romans didn't single out Christians at the beginning uniquely because they believed in Jesus. Rather, it was their beliefs in Jesus which made them not worship the Roman gods that put them at odds with the Roman Empire. So they prosecuted them based on the laws, not persecuting them distinctly based on their beliefs. And, and, And partly, fair enough. The the only point I want to make is that you're following somebody named Jesus who was put to death by the Roman Empire as, in a sense, an enemy of the state, so to speak, certainly as a criminal. John the Baptist was put to death. You get in the early part of Acts and you have uh, Stephen put to death. You have James, son of Zebedee, put to death. Every Christian from the beginning knew that they were following somebody who embraced a belief system that put them at odds with the prevailing religious culture and the prevailing Roman culture. And we have testimony that at least at times it cost them something for holding on to that belief. All right. So let's let's uh, go on to the next question here, which is 
that um, Candida Moss, Dr. Moss, she dismisses the evidence for spe- one specific kind of persecution that we read about early on, which is the persecution under Nero. And this is because she says it's 50 years after the events. So what, what are your uh, opinions on that? Well, I, I have a few thoughts. Number one, I'm not willing to dismiss something from 50 years ago. I mean, just yesterday or two days ago, I was talking with my dad who actually had met Nixon in the Nixon administration, which was roughly 50 years ago. And he was sharing specific stories and instances with me of things that he remembers. So I don't know anybody who dismisses history. Maybe we should be cautious and we should be careful and check our sources. Mm -hmm. But because something's 50 years removed doesn't seem to be a good reason to dismiss it. Second, there's actually additional support. She doesn't cite in Suetonius in his Nero 16.2, which also mentions, he doesn't use the word, but that this persecution and suffering was inflicted on this class of Christians. That's an additional source that supports Nero as well. Uh, a couple other things is she says the term Christian is anachronistic, so to speak. So she has a claim in her book where she says the term Christian was not used until the end of the first century. And so therefore, when you know Tacitus is writing this about and use the term Christian, since the term wasn't used, they didn't really exist as a group, and clearly they were not persecuting them as a group. And I actually found this interesting because earlier in the book she makes a point I agree with. She makes a point that the term martyr originally meant somebody who testified for something in front of a court of law. Only into the second century does it actually become to die for confessing the Christian faith. And she says, even though we don't have the word martyr early on, we still have the truth of a martyr nonetheless. And I think she's exactly right. It's not about the word. Yet when it comes to Christians under the time of Nero, she says they weren't called Christians till the end of the first century. Therefore, the group doesn't exist. By the way, we actually you know in, in Acts 16, I believe it is, that the Christians were called uh, at Antioch. I believe the year was 47 in the middle of the first century. So I think that claim is false that she makes. But even if it was true, I think it raises some inconsistency in different arguments that she's making. And I think the other point about Tacitus is she she is concerned with overstatement about persecution. And again, I think this is fair, but I think she maybe takes it a little too far and says this was a very small group of people that were put to death under the time of uh, Nero. But Tacitus says this was a great multitude of people. And by the way, I think if you're going to have a scapegoat for the fires in Rome and it's going to be believable by the culture in that day, this can't be a group of five people. It can't be a group of 25 people. It has to be a group that is at least somewhat known in the larger Roman Empire three decades after its inception to work for Nero to blame it off on them. So I I think she's dismissing Tacitus to... uh, too quickly because it doesn't play into the narrative that she wants to tell that there really was no persecution of any significance in the early church. Mm-hmm. And I, I read uh, briefly, I'll mention, I read a, a short article by uh, Dr. Michael Heiser on this exact point. And his, his concern was that he thinks that um, scholars make this mistake a lot 
and he mentioned that he thinks uh, Dr. Moss is making it, where they, they act as though the first rec- record, the first written account of a word is the beginning of the use of the term. And that that, that alone is a problem in and of itself. We, we, we should suggest that if it's in writing, there's a good reason to think that it was already in use before it was written down. That's right. But again, she uses it with martyr. The word martyr mm-hmm. existed but didn't have the meaning until decades later. So I'm just calling for consistency. We have this group of Christians. In fact, we do have the name in the middle of the first century. So they were known and going by that name at least two decades before the persecution under the time of Nero. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to open a can of worms with the next uh, the next thing here. So uh, Dr. Moss, <laughs> okay. she says, because this this kind of stuff, it ends up being like issues about what do you mean by that term or what do you what are you okay. assuming or the views of the other people you're talking about and all that kind of stuff. But um, so Dr. Moss, she claims that Christians, quote, like to think of their martyrs as unique. The mm. fact that early Christians were willing to die for their beliefs has been seen as a sign of the inherent truth of the Christian message. Christianity is mm. true, it is said, because only Christians have martyrs. Mm. This is a great quote. And what's interesting is she might she might be right in the sense that there probably are a lot of Christians who want to think of their martyrs as unique. So she might be right that this is what some popular people have said to her. She describes, I think, being in junior high in school, and I assume it was a Catholic school. If I got it wrong, feel free to uh, correct me, about how a teacher basically said the death of the Christian martyrs proves that Christianity is true and the resurrection happened and Christian martyrs are unique. So I'm sure she's heard this in her life. I've heard many well-meaning Christians state this as well. But she actually made that claim twice in the book where she says, in fact, I think, to, to read exactly, I think you said Christianity is true, it is said, because only Christians have martyrs. Now, what I didn't find when she said that twice is any actual Christian scholars of any merit who make that claim. That would be very interesting to me because I've read the literature on this and I don't find any New Testament scholars or any historians that I came across that say Christianity is true because their martyrs are unique. In fact, in if I can pull it out for a second, the beginning of my book, I actually cite a couple leading evangelical scholars. One of them is not an evangelical scholar. Uh, E.P. Sanders in his book, The Historical Figure Jesus, says many of the people in these lists of eyewitnesses were to spend the rest of their lives proclaiming that they had seen the risen Lord and several of them would die for their cause. He's not saying it's true. He's saying there's a willingness to suffer. They really believed it. I won't read it, but quotes by Craig Keener, one of the leading New Testament scholars today, Mike Lacone, his book in the resurrection. All the scholars that I could find don't say this is true because Christians have martyrs that are unique. They're just simply saying these first apostles who said they saw the risen Jesus went out and proclaimed this, even though it put them in harm's way. And at least some of them, I think we can establish were martyrs. That's it. So she's responding to a claim. If somebody has said that to her, then I agree with her. We shouldn't say it that way. But I don't hear careful scholars stating it in that fashion in my research. Yeah, for for someone who's interested in, um, you know, asking the question of, wait, how does 
martyrdom in any way, shape, or form weigh in on the truth of Christianity, it's not this argument. It's not, oh, well, if we have martyrs, then we're the right religion. <laughs> because That's right. you can find martyrs or people who die for their beliefs, uh, even, even unjustly are persecuted and killed for their beliefs. You can find that across lots of different religious groups. That's not, that's not the, the thoughtful way of bringing this into the question of the truth of Christianity. It does speak to sincerity, and sincerity, that comes to the truth of Christianity on the topic of the resurrection in some important ways. So, and, um, and, and by the way, I know I'm cutting you off, but that's an area where I totally agree with her in the sense that there are martyrs in uh, Greco-Roman thought. Is Socrates a martyr? You could make that claim long before the time of Christ. Mm -hmm. There's martyrs in the Jewish tradition. There's a range of different martyrs. Nobody is saying, at least that I know of, I'm certainly not saying that only Christians have martyrs. I actually think we know, even to like, the, to give a popular example, you know, like superheroes, even the recent Endgame movie, in a sense, this willingness of uh, Iron Man, and sorry to ruin it for the listeners, but you've had plenty of time to see the movie, <laughs> his willingness to die for everybody else Every culture across the world just knows that's a heroic deed and that's an act of love. Mm -hmm. So there are people willing to lay down their lives as far back as history as I know. But it's what the early apostles were willing to suffer for that simply tells me not that their martyrdoms are better than anybody else's. That's not my point. And if the story in Second Maccabees is true, these seven sons who are willing to die brutal, brutal deaths – because number one, they did believe there'd be a resurrection, but they didn't want to compromise and disobey the law. That's remarkable. I'm not saying the apostles are better than that. That would not be my argument. I'm simply saying they were willing to suffer and die because they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. That tells me they're sincere and they didn't make the story up. Yeah, and the, and the huge difference that I, I'll point out for anybody who hasn't heard this yet is that the the apostles, as opposed to later martyrs who didn't have access to the actual risen Christ, they didn't have their personal testimony of having seen him risen. There's a big difference between these two when we say, look, their sincerity is really important here. We all would say, like, if you, you die as a martyr for what you believe, that speaks of your sincerity and your commitment to that thing. But when we relate that to people who were saying, I'm an eyewitness of Jesus, I, I've seen Jesus with my own eyes, this sincerity translates into wow, um, this has bearing on the potential truthfulness of such a claim. This is a really important distinction because the moment I talk about this, instantly people will say, well, what about Muslim you know, radicals who died for their beliefs? What about other martyrs? And here's the difference. Um, a Muslim or even a Christian today could die for their beliefs if they're sincere, but they are centuries removed from the events themselves mm -hmm believing this second, third, fourth hand, however we process that chain of transmission. But the apostles were the ones that Jesus selected. He traveled with them for three years. They claimed to have seen the risen Jesus. And the earliest records we have, this is why in my book, one of the first chapters I go into, I say the earliest testimony we have in 1 Corinthians 15, which I would argue is three to five years from the death of Jesus, basically says Jesus died, buried, rose on the third day, appeared to his apostles. If you read Acts, the speeches over and over again, you have tied the apostles say Jesus died, he was buried, rose on the third day, and we are witnesses of this. You see it in the Gospels. 
the rest of the writings of Paul, the early church fathers. You don't see any Christian faith apart from the resurrection until you get into the mid-2nd century or later. So the point being, the basis of the Christian faith, why people believed this, was because the apostles said, we've seen Jesus risen, he has appeared to us, and that's the message that they proclaimed. So people can suffer for a range of different messages. A thief can suffer and put himself in harm's way to steal something. A murderer might risk going to prison because of whatever reason they want to take somebody's life. Nobody's saying other people can't be sincere. But we have to ask, what are people sincere for? And the consistent early testimony is the apostles said they had seen the risen Jesus that was the message they were willing to suffer and die for. So by the way, for my argument to go through, I actually don't have to prove that any of the apostles died as martyrs or even qualify under some definition of martyrdom. I don't even have to prove that there was widespread persecution in the Roman Empire. I don't even have to prove that. In fact, I had this conversation with William Lane Craig and he made that point. I said, you're right. Now, if we can show that some of them did die, I think that strengthens our case a little bit but we don't technically need it. All we have to show is they believe they'd seen the risen Jesus and they go out and preach this. They're threatened, they're beaten, thrown in prison at a cost to themselves. They're not making this up, or at least it's not the most reasonable explanation to say they're making this up. Yeah. Now, for the audience right now, um, thanks for joining us live. If you guys have questions, especially pushback questions, and only questions for Sean. I'm taking those today. After we share this content, we're gonna we're gonna get that. And uh, I, I like the pushback questions. I think they help answer people's, um, you know, the holes that they see or think they see in the in the reasoning that's being given. So it can really help make the case, in my opinion. Now let's see. Where are we here? Um, um, okay, another claim from the book. Another quote from the book. This is from page 18. Uh, Dr. Moss says, "Many people would argue." that even if Christians aren't the only ones to respect martyrdom, Christian martyrs are in some way different or special. There is a general perception that Christian martyrs are somehow mm. intrinsically better. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, there probably is a sense among a lot of Christians that their martyrs are better. And I'm sure Muslims think that their martyrs are better and people of different religions think their martyrs are better. I don't think that's unique to Christianity. Mm. So she may be right that some Christians believe that, but that's not my argument, and that's not what a careful argument from the willingness of the apostles to suffer would claim as it applies towards the resurrection. So I, I, don't, I don't even know what better means. It, it feels like a bizarre word to apply to martyrdom. Um, so I guess I would, I, would, I would say to her, I'd say, yeah, there's probably some Christians that, that believe that. that that's kind of human nature. Um, just like people in a certain city always think their team is better, even if they lose. I think that's just kind of the way we're wired. But the argument is not that they're better. The argument is that they're different. And I don't know anybody who wouldn't concede that. And when we focus on what their willingness to suffer was about, it keeps going back to the resurrection. Yeah. That's it. In particular, in the case of the apostles in this, in, in this uh, apologetic for the resurrection. So, you know, I, I was thinking about this quote myself, and it, it occurred to me that any martyr who dies for a good cause is better than one who dies for a bad cause. But that, of course, doesn't get to the truth of the cause. It's, 
it seems like an interesting discussion. It just doesn't seem that it has much place um, before you've figured out that whether whether what they're dying for is true, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so... All right, let's look at the next one. Um, she also claims that Christians uh, borrowed the idea of martyrdom from Greek and Jewish sources. Mm-hmm. For instance, she says Luke wants to portray Jesus like Socrates. Now, that, that's an interesting claim. And this is something for those who haven't read a lot of scholars. Um, in my view, sometimes scholars just go hog wild with finding parallels and, and the things that they think are in the head of the authors of the Bible. Well, you think pastors sometimes go beyond a text. Wait till you read scholarship on some things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but she's claiming here that Luke, when he writes about Jesus um, being killed, that he's drawing from the story of Socrates and basically changing the story of Jesus to fit the, um, the paradigm of Socrates. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting argument. She contrasts Luke with Mark. And in Mark, you see this more human suffering side of Jesus. And in Luke, he seems more cool and collected. Hmm. And so she says one possible explanation. She doesn't come out and say it's true. She says one possible explanation is that Luke is crafting his narrative to make Jesus a modern day Socrates. Now, that's the only evidence that I could find that she gave, that she takes out some of those suffering elements and has him kind of cool in the way that he dies, therefore a modern-day Socrates. To me, examining the evidence, I fall, I just find that woefully inadequate. Now, it could be that Luke is saying, I do want to portray Jesus in a way that would be most appealing to his audience. But that doesn't imply that he's fabricating. That doesn't imply that he's borrowing. It could be implied that he's strategic and he's wise in how he tells the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it falls that they're borrowing from Socrates. And it does remind me, like you said, sometimes in scholarship you find this idea of parallelomania where people go to these ancient Greco-Roman sources and find, oh, this is a precursor to resurrection. This is baptism. This is the teachings of Jesus. And they read stuff into the story that's not there. That's what I think could be happening with this. So I, bottom line, I'd say it's possible, but to find that the most reasonable explanation for what Luke is doing, I'm going to need a lot more evidence. And, and by the way, one thing we know about the Christian faith is that, yes, it was in a Greco-Roman culture, but you go back to probably 1890 to about 1940, a lot of scholars believed that Christianity was borrowed from this ancient you know, Greco-Roman culture that had these mystery religions. Now one of the things the vast majority of scholars believe that if you want to understand Christianity, you have to go to its Jewish roots. And all we have to do is look in the Old Testament and see that this idea of suffering and being a prophet who it costs them something is clearly what we see in the life of Jesus. But with that said, there are certain elements in the life of Jesus that were unexpected to the Jewish audience. And this is not because they got from the Greco-Roman culture. The idea that the Messiah would die and be crucified shamefully, if they were trying to tell the story to make him a modern-day Socrates, they would have gotten rid of the crucifixion. That was the most shameful way anybody could die. Mm. But not only that, that the Messiah would be God and the Messiah would resurrect— these are novel ideas that certainly weren't borrowed from, you know, Plato did not believe in this idea of resurrection. You left the body behind and your soul went up into heaven. 
So maybe at best he's showing that Jesus is in control because Luke wants to appeal to wider sentiments in the Greco-Roman culture at that time. But that doesn't imply deception. It doesn't imply that they concocted the narrative borrowing from Socrates. And I would argue that some of the things left in there are just like Paul says. You know, it's to the Greeks and the Jews, it's, it's an insult and it's a stumbling block. If they were just concocting the story to make it fit the culture of the time, they would have gone a lot further with the person of Jesus. Yeah, and I, I'm a little bit skeptical of, of some of these ways of uh, the way the conversation begins of, of saying, here's the difference between, difference between Mark and Luke, you know, and Mark Jesus is, is you know, suffering and, and like, for instance, Bart Ehrman, this makes me think of Bart Ehrman, who says that Jesus was in despair and confusion. And then in Luke, he's calm and collected. But when you actually study Mark, just read it in context. This isn't the portrayal of Jesus we get in Mark, um, mm. where where Jesus is is so different than in Luke. I mean, he predicts his own suffering and betrayal multiple times in the Gospel of Mark. It, it it's not. It seems as though it's a somewhat of a caricature of math of Mark and Luke, then drawn out into. We're just getting really out there into um, hypothesizing off a caricature at least that's how it comes across to me i know you probably wouldn't use such extreme terms but, well that, but yeah. here's the here's the bottom line christians don't borrow martyrdom from anybody anybody as i said a moment ago i think we all know that a life of courage and a life of sacrifice for others is the greatest act of love and heroism i mean that's a trans culture it might be expressed a little bit differently across cultures i get that but the sense of sacrifice even if there's differences of how Jesus died and Socrates died. Bottom line, this idea of sacrifice, we just know and resonate that with human beings. So I don't think we have to go to Socrates to understand the story. I think we go to the Old Testament, and then we go to what the apostles said they saw and this radical shift in their beliefs, which they said is because Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to them. All right, let, let's talk a little bit about um, Stephen. Here's here's my cat if anybody's interested <laughs> she's kind of cramping my style at the moment i will share it because i've been getting a lot of requests actually for the cat cam and my cat has not been sitting in the chair next to me but today she is so everybody can uh well what was that that was something from an old stream all right there's our there's our little little cat cam for the people who are just like begging for it in the chat and the rest are just rolling their eyes which is fine i get a lot of that from my wife anyway <laughs> there she is that's moxie the other one was mika all right, but back on topic. If you guys have um, uh, maybe need a little bit more background before we progress further, we're going to talk about Stephen in the Book of Acts in a second. But I just want to say um, maybe you could just catch us up. We're talking about you know early church martyrs, the apostles in particular, who we care about the most. In this case, who would you say are the ones we have the strongest case for for their suffering and likely martyrdom, historically speaking? So when I was deciding how to do my dissertation, I had to pick who I was going to study. Obviously, the 12. And then I decided James and Paul because of their influence in the early church, because they both wrote at least one book in the New Testament, and because there's early attestation that they saw the risen Jesus. So I didn't track down stories of Mark or stories of, say, Barnabas, etc., even though those legends are out there centuries removed. Now, of the 12, I actually would conclude— that we only have two of what I would call on a historical probability scale, a high level of confidence died as martyrs. Mm -hmm. I think that's Peter and then James, the son of Zebedee. 
I think Thomas and Andrew, you could make a case that they're at least more probable than not, but the evidence is thinner and it's later and it's not near as strong. Now, I think also James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, we have good early corroboration. They were willing to suffer and die for their belief they had seen the risen Jesus and could qualify if we're careful about the definition of a martyr. So really, if that's 14, we have four high degree of confidence, two more probable than not, arguably, and some scholars are more sanguine than I am, some scholars are more critical than I am, and then the rest, to be honest, it's really hard to know, and this is what Candida points out. You know, in the fourth century, she says, and I agree with this, in the fourth century, you see this wild just divorce from history and these complete novels and stories showing up. So with Barnabas, him being skimmed alive, the earliest I could find was like the turn of the sixth century. That doesn't mean it's false, but yeah. what historical confidence can we have in that? So I, yeah. I graded those as just as plausible as not. It's really hard to know when history ends and fiction begins. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not it's not as though this is that there's a case against their martyrdom. It's just hard to piece together a case for it. There's a lot of empty space when we look at history and we try to say what happened. We just sometimes we say, well, I don't know. But the ones in w- that we can be uh, the most confident of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead and respond to that. Well, I was going to say with some of the apostles, there are differing claims about how they died. And then with Philip and with, gosh, I believe it's Matthew or Matthias. I'm getting it confused in my mind like the early church fathers did. Philip and one of the M's, there's also, it's like a third or fourth century tradition that they died a natural death. Mm-hmm. So there are some of these competing late traditions. Mm-hmm. And I think what's going on, and Candida points this out, is you have these cities that are kind of competing for power and authority. And if you can have a martyr, you know, an apostle that died as a martyr in your city, that gives you authority and power in that time. So I don't doubt some of the points that she brings in the third, fourth, fifth century, this kind of fictionalizing was taking place. That's not germane to the argument that I'm making when we go back to the first century, the willingness of the apostles to suffer and die because they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. Those fictional accounts don't take away from what we know in their earliest record. Yeah, yeah, important point to make. And and it, it's it's also relevant to me that the the individuals who you have the highest probability of their suffering and, and eventual martyrdom are also the ones who are the most important in the case for the resurrection. These are our key witnesses in particular. Um, you know, Paul, James, Peter, these guys are really important in that historical case for the resurrection. And coincidentally, we have the strongest reason to uh, support their sincerity. Yeah, this is a really interesting point because when you look at the list of the apostles, typically when you look at Matthew, Mark, uh, and John, uh, not in John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the first of John, and then in the middle you have like Thomas, you have Matthew, and kind of Barnabas, and then you have Matthias, although he comes later, uh, Judas, son of Alphaeus, you have these third-tier apostles at the end. And it turns out in that first tier we have the best evidence, although questions about John remain. In the middle tier we have moderate evidence. In the last tier we have almost no evidence, interestingly enough. So Peter, who's cited more than any other apostle, he's consistently the leader of the apostles. He's most outspoken. We have within the living memory, which uh, scholar Marcus Bachmuel would say is by the end of the second century, a tradition that's passed down that still is not so far removed that it's, you know, totally hearsay. It's within the third generation of the apostles, their generation, those that come after, and the third. 
we have 10 sources of varying strength that consistently agree and tell the story that Peter died as a martyr. Now, Candida pushes back and says that some of these sources don't say that he was executed. Like, for example, Clement of Rome, who writes probably about 95 to 97 AD, says he doesn't describe that he was executed. And she's right about that. But the context is very clear that both Peter and Paul suffer to the point of death. In fact, Bart Ehrman wrote, he said, a tradition was well known at that time that Peter and Paul both died as martyrs, and he uses that word. So how he died is actually secondary. I don't think Peter was crucified upside down. In fact, I've come to think even more recently, he probably wasn't even crucified. Uh, but that doesn't matter for my research. And you also have in the first century for Peter, you have in John 21, where Jesus says to Peter, you will be taken where you do not want to go. Your hands will be tied. And basically he's saying, just as I was the shepherd, now you will be the good shepherd who will also lay down your life for your flock. And then, of course, in English translation, they didn't have parentheses in Greek. It says this was to indicate the way that he would die. Mm -hmm. And again, Bart Ehrman says, he says there was a tradition that was known that John is writing on that uh, Peter died as a martyr, and he uses that word. So that's two sources, mm -hmm. and that story is consistent into the second century, to the end of the second century and beyond. There's no other story that I could find remotely early about Peter. So it's early, it's consistent, a range of different sources. It sure seems to me we have good historical ground to conclude that Peter died as a martyr. Yeah, yeah. Which again, that's pretty significant stuff. All right, let's let's uh, talk about Stephen in the Book of Acts. Okay. Um, so according to uh, Candida Moss, the story of Stephen in Acts is remarkably similar to the story of Jesus, and so she suggests it's a literary device that Luke wants to use. Okay. Um, and he wants us to see Stephen's death like Jesus's death. Okay. So. Stephen is the first person who's distinctly martyred in the early chapters in Acts. Mm -hmm. So he was not a part of my larger case. And she's right that there are some scholars who, if you look at the story of Stephen, it seems to really mirror the story of Jesus. It's very, very close in terms of the way that he dies. So her takeaway is uh, this was concocted to show that any Christian who believed this would also die and suffer in the same way as Jesus. So she is skeptical of this account of Stephen because it feels like it's being invented and there's just narration added to it to make it look like the story of Jesus. Now, I, I would take a little bit of issue with that, but let me concede that. Fine. But what's interesting is if you go to Acts 12 too, just a few chapters later, we now have the execution of James, the son of Zebedee, by Herod. All those details are missing. None of them are there. In fact, in his massive, multi-volume, careful commentary on the book of Acts, Craig Keener says it just reads like a straightforward execution account. So you can't have it both ways. You can't dismiss Stephen because it feels like it's, you know, it's made up to sound like Jesus, but then dismiss James when it's the exact opposite and very straightforward. Now, I do think it's important, and she argues in her book, she says the distinction between um, politics and religion was not black and white in that culture. And she's right. There's an overlap there. 
there's an overlap. So Herod wants to seize control. So there's a political element of why he has James put to death. But there's also a religious element. And my only point is James knew exactly what he was doing, that during the ministry of Jesus, Herod, the Herod at that time, was pushing back and resisting them and trying to put Jesus to death. So if they keep preaching this name of Jesus, yes, there's a political component, but James is a leader in the church, intentionally proclaiming a message in Jerusalem, putting himself in harm's way. So whether we want to call him a martyr or not is somewhat secondary to me. But that sure tells me James isn't making this up. I don't think Luke is inventing this story the way he reports the narrative itself in a straightforward fashion. That tells me we have good reason to trust this account. Now, I would say not quite as strong as Peter and Paul because it primarily relies upon one early source. But I do think we have good reason to take that account as certainly more likely historical, historical than not. All right. Let's look at another quote from her book. Um, this is from uh, page 137. And uh, Dr. Moss says, the problem here is that our sources for these events are the stuff of legend, not history. The fact of the matter is that we don't know mm. how many of uh, how any of the apostles died, much less whether they were martyred. There are 15 different versions of the deaths of the apostles, Peter and Paul, that were written before the end of the 6th century. What are your thoughts on that? So the, the works that she cites primarily in the myth of persecution are these acts of Peter, acts of Paul, acts of Thecla. And these are earliest mid-2nd century into the 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries beyond. And these are legendary accounts. I mean, they have stories of like, I think it's Paul baptizing a lion uh, when John has like these bed bugs and he commands them outside of his room and around his bed. I think Peter raises a tuna fish from the dead, if I remember correctly. I mean, these are fanciful like novels that are told. So she dismisses all of these accounts and says, we don't know the apostles died as martyrs because they appear in these. And I would say, well, first off, those are, are not written as historical events in the sense they're not trying to tell us history like say Eusebius does but they tell these narratives around a known historical core that cannot be completely dismissed now the difficulty is how do we pull out what's history versus what's legend and I'm not going to pretend that's easy but my point would be I don't want to just dismiss those as being completely legendary. I think they have a basis of historical core. But even more importantly, if we get rid of all of those, at least for Peter and Paul, James the son De Zebedee, and James the brother of Jesus, and possibly a certain account of Philip and other apostles, but that's much later, we have these non-apocryphal sources, a range of sources. In fact, James the brother of Jesus we actually have early Christian sources. We have Josephus, a Jewish source. And we have a Gnostic source that kind of tell the story of his martyrdom. So it's just false to say these are all apocryphal accounts. It's it like I'm suggesting earlier, it, it paints this wide brush with high contrast so that it's either it's all accepted as as you know undeniable fact or it's all dismissed as um, hyperbole exaggeration and and fabrication but if we look at it more carefully then we can suggest no no that we're look we're trying to look at history here do history that's a different approach and it does give us a lot more than at least what's implied when you're reading these uh these quotes 
So mm. let's um let's talk about <laughs> one more. Excuse me. That's my alarm to stop talking. Uh, so she uh, she dismisses the testimony of Pliny in particular, and um, it's in his exchange uh, of letters with Trajan because Pliny has to make inquiries about this and that there were no measures in place for the treatment of Christians. Now, I, I think for most of our audience, you're going to have to explain to them who Pliny was and what this exchange is about before you then maybe explain her objection and how you respond. Okay, so uh, Pliny, Roman writer, Trajan, uh, Roman leader, official at this time. And there's multiple, dozens of letters of them going back and forth. And what, by the way, this is into the early 2nd century. So this would have been after the time of Christ and probably all the apostles were dead. But it tells this consistent narrative that we see in the Gospels, we see in the letters of Peter, we see in Nero— that early on there was a kind of cost for the Christians, whether persecution or prosecution, for the name of Christ. So there's this exchange where you see where uh, Pliny's trying to figure out, how much do I apply this these, these laws when it comes to Christians? I ask them to confess once, second time, three times, and then I punish them. And Her take is, because Pliny doesn't know exactly how to do this, and he has to write a letter to Trajan, it means there was no policy in place at that time for the mistreatment of Christians based upon the name. And my response to that is like, well, just look at our our country today. There's tons of policies in place, but we still don't know. Do we follow the local government? Do we follow the city government, the state, uh, the national government? I mean, I'm in Orange County right now, and people shut down the beaches. And one of the mayors said, I will not be enforcing the law of the beaches, one of the particular beaches in central Orange County. So it would make perfect sense for me to write a letter to the governor and say, "Um, what am I supposed to do here? Help me out. Can I go to the beach or not? Take issues like immigration or take issues like the drug war with marijuana and with other drugs. Do we enforce this or do we not? It's common practice for there to be laws and people still to subvert them and not follow them. And so for people like Pliny to say, what does it look like for me to follow this or not? So that's why I think she raised an interesting point, but I'm not convinced that it overturns this account in Pliny that frankly just supports this continual narrative that we have this tension between the beliefs of early Christians costing them something for proclaiming the name of Christ. Yeah, and the actual letters between Pliny and Trajan are really interesting to read. I mean, Pliny was one of the governors. I forget where he was the governor right now. Do you happen to remember? Uh, specifically off the top of my head, yeah, I don't remember. It just, I blank on it as well. But but if you read the letters, what you'll see is he's 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 even like torturing them to try to get them to recant their Christian faith. And one of the issues is he's like, well, what if they just won't? <laughs> so so he's yeah. he's he's writing to Trajan, and the way of being someone who's seen. Uh, people kissing up to to dangerous leaders in the past. Um, that's how it's written. It's written like Pliny's like, oh, Trajan, all your, you know, effectively, all everything you say is great, and I'm trying to really fulfill what you want. I want to do exactly what you want. Um, these horrible Christians, I'm trying to get them to recant and stuff. Um, boy, they're really annoying, just like you said. But, uh, you know, what do I do if they don't? It almost sounds like someone who doesn't want to tell Trajan he's too strict, but per, but but is trying to kind of hint at the idea that maybe we can relax a little bit on this. Mm. At least that's how it reads to me when I was reading the, the exchange. Um, and it, it seems like mm-hmm. it, her conclusions 
from what I understand, seem like they they are uh, missing the forest through the trees, perhaps. Um, that there was well, there was this there was this um, suffering that was inflicted upon Christians because of their beliefs. Paul Meyer is an ancient uh, ancient historian. He's retired, I believe, from Western Michigan and uh, written a ton on commentary on Eusebius and early church history. And he said, you know, one thing we know from the early part of the church all the way through into the second century, the scholars agree on, is that there was this deep tension. And he uses the word persecution of Christians during this time. So it's a minority view to dismiss Nero, to completely dismiss Pliny, but she's telling this larger narrative that there wasn't any widespread persecution. So she's kind of forced herself into a box to limit and resist and find a way around Pliny, similarly to what I think she's maybe doing with Nero. Yeah. All right. Now, um, you actually just did a, a show. Well, it, it airs, I think, later this week on Friday on Unbelievable, where you actually engage in a debate discussion on this topic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this started because I just recently have been focusing more so on my YouTube channel. I've wanted to do this forever. I've seen guys like you and being like, man, you're just interacting with a ton of people. This is awesome. And the quarantine is like, I'm going to do this. So I've made some videos, done some interviews, really cool guests. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try a response video. In fact, it was your idea. I don't yeah. know if you wanted me to give the credit yeah, or not. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I sent, I sent this video to, to, to Sean. And I was like, right. hey, yeah, you should check this out. If you're thinking about doing a response, here's a great one to respond to because it was targeting your work. And it was by a popular atheist, uh, Paul Ogia. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's online. He did. So I did this curriculum with this group called Awana. It's a 32-week high school curriculum about apologetics and worldview. So if I remember, it's like a seven or eight minute video. I'm acting out, getting arrest, describing the deaths of the apostles. So obviously, if you take a scholarly text and teach it to students, it's not inaccurate, but you just have to find a way to teach it in a way that they understand and they grasp. So he took my popular video and kind of spliced it up and responded point by point in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And at your request, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to respond to this because he actually took my idea seriously, which I appreciate a lot of people have dismissed different ideas of mine over the years without even taking the time to read it. Mm-hmm. And so I did a response to it. And then all these people online are like, hey, it should, someone called it like biologia versus apology and made this <laughs> image and people are inviting us in. And so Justin Brierley, good friend at Unbelievable, was like, hey, would you guys have a conversation? So it wasn't a formal debate. It does come out Friday. And I thought it was really lively. I mean, he asked some questions and I tried to just – respectfully push back and say, okay, wait a minute, you got to think about this. And it, it was a great exchange. He's a nice fellow. He's thoughtful. And I think people watching that will at least see when it's done and say, okay, here's where they differ and they can make up their own minds what they think is actually compelling. Yeah. And that, that's important. Um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about this because a lot of times those of us who are outside scholarship, we, we think scholars think, and there's like a dot, 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 fill in the blank on pick the topic on the resurrection of Christ or on the Bible. Yeah. Um, but in reality, especially the more I read scholarship, I, I think scholarship is, is as, as big of a mess as anything else is of disagreeing opinions. And the value of scholarship is really in helping you chase down the points of disagreement in a discussion, not just telling you what to think about things. Uh, but what, what would you say about the, the nature of scholarship uh, being united or divided on these topics? Oh gosh. That, so that's a big question. I think there's a perception about scholarship and peer-reviewed research that it's objective and there's not agendas 
and people test things, put forward hypotheses, and the strongest argument stands, and there's not politics or egos involved, well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, I read a book, I believe he's agnostic, years ago. It's called The Trouble with Physics. And the author argued that there was so much pressure among people to adopt string theory that it compromises research, affects positions that people take. And he really believed that it had corrupted physics. I was like, that's interesting because yeah. that's not my realm. Yeah. Well, I don't think New Testament studies are, are corrupted in that sense. But you do have people that sometimes if you can come up with a novel interpretation that nobody's thought of before and defend it, you get attention to that. You get published. Now, ultimately, I think over time, good scholarship wins out. But scholars are human beings like everybody else. And, you know, so you really got to I guess I'd say when you hear somebody say most scholars believe you got to probe a little bit more deeply than that and say, what do they believe? Why do they believe it? How do you know most scholars actually believe that? Mm -hmm. Are these the scholars in the very field that we're talking about? And a lot of times, as I've probed that back to its source, have found very different information than I was led to believe, you know, on a more popular level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 getting into the weeds. Every time I get into an issue and decide to really read scholarship on different sides of a topic, I'm like, this is going to take a while. You know, it's not it's not as simple as we'd like it to be when we're trying to just explain something briefly to people. You could still explain things briefly, but sometimes you have to go into the weeds to come back out with clarity, and it takes time. Yeah. Hmm. So um, we're going to go to some of the questions from the audience right now. Um, okay. But I want to mention before we do that your your YouTube channel, which is what's the name of your YouTube channel? Actually, it's just Dr. Sean McDowell is the the thumb I have for it. But we've officially partnered with Biola Apologetics. Hmm. So if you enjoy this stuff on your show, I've got interviews actually tomorrow with Peter Gurry. He wrote the book Myths and Mistakes in New Testament Textual Criticism. Hmm. That'll be interesting. And really walking through some of the mistakes both I think Airman makes and popular apologists have made. Mm -hmm. Got interviews with Os Guinness coming up, Stephen Meyer, Randy Alcorn, have a pretty cool list. And then we post one or two other videos a week, whether response videos or just apologetic worldview kinds of videos. Right. Well, I, I will, uh, once we're done, I'll put a link to your channel. I should have done it already, but cool. I'll put a link to your channel All in right. the video description here. And you guys are welcome to check that out. He's going to have more content coming out in the future than he has in the past. And I think that... Um, I think that a lot of my audience will be interested in that. So uh, Purple Pill Philosophy has a question. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, okay, that's not exactly a question. Oh, hold on. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to move towards more questions than comments here. So uh, A. Al says, wasn't crucifixion a normal type of punishment that the Romans used? The point To the point that some roads were lined with those crucified on crosses. Uh, crucifixion was a common means of execution by the Roman Empire almost entirely for non-citizens. So, yes, it was used regularly then. Romans didn't invent it. The Persians did. You might say, for lack of a better term, the Romans perfected it in terms of making it the victim last for a while, humiliate the victim. So, yeah, there were a lot of people who were crucified. But the fact that it was common doesn't take away from the shame of what it meant to be crucified. I mean, the victim was stripped utterly bare. And the whole goal when crucifying somebody was they did it in a public place, like this questioner said along the road, to make an example, do not stand against the Roman Empire. 
they were intimidating and showing what would happen if you question the powers that be. Mm -hmm. But we miss this sometimes in Western culture, how we don't have an honor-shame culture. In fact, I just this past week interviewed Abdu Murray, who wrote a book, Seeing Jesus from the East, Mm -hmm. and described that when we see the honor-shame culture of Jesus, we read the New Testament very differently. And in Western culture, we talk about truth, truth, truth. In Eastern cultures, sometimes truth can be compromised, although they wouldn't use that word, because the higher value is honor for the family. Mm -hmm. So yes, crucifixion may have been popular, but it was the most shameful death imaginable, especially at that time. Yeah, I was reading on crucifixion and they were saying that, um, and I can't remember his name right now, it's the guy on crucifixion, the scholar. Martin um, Hengel. Hengel, his book on crucifixion. And he was saying that in ancient writings, the authors would like avoid even using the word crucifixion. They would call it like the extreme punishment or something because it was just um, the way we avoid using certain terms. Like yeah. he didn't die, he passed away or he's not with us anymore because it's just like, oh, that's just hard to say. It was really a big deal to, to you, to your family, to everybody. Uh, yeah, people yeah. wouldn't wear crosses around like we do as jewelry. It just would never have crossed their mind in yeah. that fact. Yeah, but man, it, it, it just drives home the radicalness of the Christian message, the offense of it, the, the apparent irrationality of it to those who didn't understand it. This is, I mean, the message of the cross is foolishness to the Gentiles. This is, this is what uh, Paul wrote. So and by the way, context, Candida yeah. talks about that in the book. She says, when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, a lot of Protestants will say, oh, my cross is my neighbor is loud or my boss is really like strict. Mm-hmm. No, she, she got it right when she says that meant be prepared to die on behalf of Jesus. Yeah. Now, this wasn't a call to military action. Mm-hmm. It was a call to lay down your life and to love people. Yeah. So those who take this call to martyrdom for power in the way she's concerned are abusing what Jesus actually taught. Okay, here's an interesting question for you. This is from Black Tuesday Films, who says, uh, Hey, Mike and Sean, keep up the good work. I was curious, does the majority of New Testament scholarship accept Dr. Moss's claims, or is it only online atheists? Thanks for everything. Uh, It depends on what is meant by Dr. Moss's claims. So if you mean, do the majority of scholars accept her view? And I mean, I could almost read it here to make sure I get it right. She says it all through the book. Yeah, go ahead and read it if you like. Um, uh, might take me a second here. It says, uh, uh, let me see if I can find this. All through the book, the basic idea being, okay, here, here she says, uh, the historical evidence does not support the theory that Christians were constantly persecuted in the early church. And I, I think she's right about that. Yeah, especially Majority if you scholars, say constantly universally persecuted. Yeah, I, I don't know if she had the word universally in there. I might have yeah. had, I didn't mean to add that. No, I, I added that. I was just but, thinking. That oh, you did? Okay. That I would, didn't want to But it. that's, I think, what some people do have in their mind that we would say shouldn't. Yeah. Yes. I think insofar as that premise, scholars would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things in her book scholars would not agree with. Her complete dismissal of the persecution in the New Testament, Nero, through Pliny, I think the vast majority of scholars would put a lot more confidence in Tacitus mm-hmm. than she does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes on some things, but no on others. There you go. Um, okay, Ryan Tanner, uh, who is one of my mods, has a question. I would love to hear Dr. McDowell's opinion on the early church, think Athanasius, uh, the view of desiring and actively seeking martyrdom. 
So I got to be honest with you. I didn't spend a lot of time studying Athanasius. Mm -hmm. He is long after the first century and early second century is all that I studied uh, that I can speak to on a scholarly level. Sure. Now, you do see in the early church, and again, Moss talks about this, that there's a lot of people like specifically Ignatius, who I did read extensively, who's like, if I start telling people, if I start crying out to save me, don't save me. I want to die as a martyr like Jesus. Yeah. In almost like almost sadistic kind of way, like, whoa, this is bizarre. Yeah. So there was a strain of people that wanted to lay down their lives for the Christian faith. Yes, that that existed after this movement. Uh, that's an undeniable part. Now, some of the big questions that I think are interesting is what would happen when Christians were put to the point of martyrdom but then gave up their faith mm -hmm. and didn't actually uh, go through with it. There's debates in the early church. Could they be allowed back into the fold? Yeah. And here's a point that I would make is that she pushes back and says, we don't have any record of the apostles uh, being told that they could give up their beliefs at the point of death. Thus, they don't qualify as martyrs. Now, I would say two things to that. Number one, I think the apostles willingly put themselves in harm's way, knowing what could happen based on what happened to Jesus and their leaders. So they still could qualify as a martyr, even if they're not given this last minute chance to recant. In fact, in 2016, it was in France, this uh, Catholic priest, uh, a few, I think three or four radical Muslims came in and slit his throat while he was delivering communion. And what's fascinating about the story is there's no record he was given an opportunity to recant. But the press, Christians, including the Pope, and Muslims all labeled him a martyr because he was acting out his faith and killed in that fashion. Mm -hmm. So I, that's where I would differ with, with Moss a little bit. But I'd also add on top of that, back to the point that was asked in this question, is if there were any apostles who recanted their belief, if that actually happened, they said, no, I don't believe one of the 12, both Christians and critics like Celsus would have reason to cite this against the Christian faith. Christians would because they'd say, look, Matthias bailed on his faith at the moment. Therefore, it settles this theological question that you can still be in the fold. Mm -hmm. Or critics would say, no, Judas, son of Alphaeus, didn't, if there's even a story about it. And if he's one of the 12 and didn't go through the martyrdom, it, uh, it undermines it. So I concede that there is no historical account of them recanting from friends or foes. That is an argument from silence, but I, I would argue it's an argument from silence with some teeth. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because there's reason to expect to see it there, which gives it the yeah. teeth. Yeah. Now, th this is interesting because I know um, I've heard from some skeptics online um, as, as well that that this is like really important that we know that they had the chance to recant their views before they died. And the reason why they say it's important is because you can't really say they were totally sincere unless we know they had that opportunity to say, okay, I, I take it back, and then that now I can live. Now, what would you say as, uh, in addition to, the, to what you've already said, 
as as um, a case for the sincerity of the apostles, whether or not they had the chance to recant at the last moment? I think the answer to that is they all knew exactly what they were signing up for. Jesus said when he sends him out, I think it's in Matthew 10, you will be taken before governors. You'll be taken before kings. This will cost you something. Some of you will die for this. Follow my lead. Look what happened to Stephen. Look what happened to John the Baptist. This was a martyrdom movement. And in our culture, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp because it still doesn't really cost us to believe anything today, at least in the West in America. It does in some places, say, in the Middle East. So we think, oh, they could just believe it and go on with their lives. Well, it changed things radically for them, putting themselves at odds with the religious community, put themselves at odds with the Roman Empire. So especially the apostles who'd said they'd seen the risen Jesus knew full well what they were getting into as they keep proclaiming this message. I mean, just read the beginning of Acts. They're threatened, they're beaten, they're thrown in prison. So whether or not we use that strict criteria, which I would not accept to define something distinctly as a martyr, they still know full well that they're not into this for like power or money or for like lust or the ladies, the typical reason that men might get into a movement like this. Mm. None of those kind of motivations apply. They're putting themselves in harm's way because they believe Jesus rose from the grave. Minimally, that tells me they're not inventing this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have them suffering uh, during the time of their lives at various points while they're preaching these things. We have them aware. We, they show awareness that this may cost them their lives, and they are commending others that they should be willing to die for this because they're eyewitnesses. I mean, these are all... So if, if, it was, if it was a surprise and they just suddenly, unexpectedly, someone just kills them because they're Christians... You, you might not weigh that towards their sincerity, but with the expectation and the experiences of suffering, it's a whole different story, yeah. Yeah, or if they died by like a heart attack or someone robbed their home, completely divorced from the message mm -hmm. they were proclaiming. Yeah. But at least the records we have is their suffering and the death of both James, etc., is tied to their public proclamation. Okay, here's a request, and if, if you don't have something on this, it's okay, but um, Todd uh, Leibovitz says, can Dr. McDowell go into more detail about Moses's, excuse me, Moss's rebuttal, sorry, Moss's rebuttal to the Nero account regarding Christian persecution? Uh, so Moss has a few ways that she dismisses the Nero account. One is that the record we have it is 50 years removed, so we can't trust it. That's one reason, or at least we should be skeptical of the 50-year gap. Mm -hmm. And to me, we know a lot of things from 50 years ago. There's people alive from events 50 years ago, including my father. We were just this week talking events from 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. and I have no reason to question his testimony on these things. That's one point that she makes. Um, a second point that she makes is that the term Christian that's used in Tacitus is anachronistic, so it would have been used in the early 2nd century when he wrote this, but would not have been used uh, during the time of Nero, say, in the mid-60s, because the term Christian was not used till the end of the 1st century. Well, two points. Number one, even if they don't use the word, you could still have Christians then by another name, whatever you call them, yeah. and she concedes that with a point of martyrdom. But second, in the book of Acts, we have Christians being called, we have the followers of Jesus being called Christians at Antioch, which I believe is around 47. 
a half century before she says this, and at least two decades before the time of Nero. Um, I think the other criticism that she gives is that it was very few, a really small number. And I just, Tacitus describes it as a great multitude. Mm -hmm. And as I said earlier, for, for the Christians to operate as a scapegoat, because it was believed that Nero had burned a huge amount of Rome down, he's scapegoating the Christians. There had to be a sufficient size group that people would accept and adopt, otherwise it wouldn't work. And they also had to be a group that he believed would be hated as he describes in that depiction. And people would say, good, get rid of the Christians, punish them, we hate them. So Nero might have been crazy, but he was no dummy. <laughs> He's selecting a decent-sized group that enough people would have hated to get himself off the hook. That's a really helpful summary. I think that's, that's good stuff. Um, all right, we have another question from Finding Truth who says, what sources are there to support the martyrdom of the rest of the disciples that were not mentioned in the Bible as being killed for the faith? And this is maybe kind of a broad yeah. question. What would your uh, thought be on that? Yeah, so this is where Moss and I actually do agree. So I would say once you get outside of Peter and Paul and both James, again, possibly Andrew or Thomas, there's a little bit of second century into third century documents that might have a grain of historicity to them, might. Mm -hmm. When you get to the rest of the apostles, Bartholomew, you get to Thaddeus, you get to Matthew. These are third, fourth, fifth century accounts that are in these writings that are called apocryphal writings. You can actually read them online. There's good translations online. Uh, at, at certain sites that are reliable. So the problem is, when you look at, say, Bartholomew, I was able to track down, I believe, before like the 6th or 7th century, that he was stabbed to death, he was crucified, he was drowned, he was burned to death, and he was flayed to death. He well, really, really had a lot happen to him, that guy. <laughs> either he had a really bad day, yeah. or maybe one of those is true, mm. or maybe they're all made up. I don't think we can know with confidence what happened to Bartholomew, mm. historically speaking. Yeah. So a lot of these other apostles, if you just search like the Acts of um, – uh, there's Acts of Matthias. There's Acts of these different apostles, 3rd, 4th, 5th century, and then later accounts in that. You can read some of these fictional novels that I agree with Moss were probably entirely made up once you get to the 4th century. Yeah. Now, however, it's good to differentiate um, the specific accounts of the martyrdom of these individuals versus a general case for suffering uh, persecution or a hostile environment experienced by the original apostles. That's a whole different ball of wax, right? Yes. And, you know, and by the way, we actually have at least two or three other early accounts that don't name the specific apostles. But like in the letters of Polycarp, Polycarp writes in the middle of the second century and by the way, again, even Bart Ehrman says that Polycarp was aware of a martyrdom of Paul. He says that Paul and the other apostles indicates that they were, they were put to death. Now, the difficulty of that phrase is what's meant by apostles, because Luke and Paul use the term differently. Luke typically refers to the 12, but Paul was not one of the 12. He calls other people apostles in a broader sense. So is it the 12 and bigger? Uh, that's an early broad statement that may include the 12, 
There's also a statement of the 4th century by a Syrian writer, Afrahat, that describes specifically how some of the apostles died. But you're in Syria, you're now into the 300s, so it's just hard to know how much historicity to put in those as they apply to the other apostles. Right on, right on. Okay, well, we're, we're nearing to a conclusion here, but a couple more questions for you. Um, Andrew T. says, I'm still kind of confused about how this is strong evidence for a resurrection type event. Could you clarify? Yeah, so this alone is not evidence within itself for a resurrection event, meaning you can't go from the willingness of the apostles to die directly to the truth of the resurrection. I think we get to the truth of the resurrection by looking at the known facts that Jesus lived. We knew he, we know he was put to death. We have very good reason to believe he's buried and the tomb is empty. And you have all these early appearance claims to the women, to the 500, to the apostles, to Paul. These larger facts is where we make a resurrection claim. The death of the apostles comes into the question. The early creeds and statements we have that the apostles said that Jesus appeared to them, how can we trust these appearance claims? Well, one piece that gives credibility to the appearance claims is that they're willing to put themselves in harm's way. They're willing to suffer and die for the belief that Jesus had risen from the grave. So this is a sub-point of a larger resurrection argument, so to speak. But it's not an insignificant one. I interviewed Lee Strobel a few weeks ago, actually on my YouTube channel, and I asked him, I said, what was the best evidence that convinced you? And he actually said the willingness of the apostles to suffer and die really told me they weren't making this up. They really believe this. So it's significant but we don't want to overstate it, and we want to place it in the question of their credibility. Were they lying? Was this a conspiracy? If they're willing to suffer and die for this, it sure seems to me to undermine that claim. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, so there's a case for the resurrection that has multiple points, and then we say, given these historical realities, what best explains them? We think the resurrection of Christ best explains all these various you know, facts of history. And someone would counter with, well, what if the disciples who were giving these eyewitness accounts were lying about it? We say, oh, but look at their suffering and martyrdom. Um, so, yeah, good stuff. Okay, last question from Susan Morales, who says, does the Bible itself, as a historical document, provide evidence of the persecution of the church? And should Christians find this sufficient, even if it isn't convincing to non-believers? That's actually a really good question. Yeah, that's very thoughtful, Susan. I don't think just Christians should find this sufficient. I think any critical, careful historian should find it convincing mm -hmm. that the apostles actually were persecuted for their beliefs, and the early church was. Now, we have to be careful exactly what we mean by persecution. And I think some people will say to me, well, they'll say commonly, they'll say, well, this is in the Bible. You're just saying the Bible tells me so. And I'm saying, no, actually, let's look at the different biblical books as independent historical sources and ask, are they reliable? Is there archaeological support? Do they have the internal ring of authentic claims to truth and being eyewitness accounts? As we examine the New Testament accounts from the Gospels to Acts to the letters of Paul, we consistently see this theme of a price that's being paid to Christians for believing that Jesus rose from the grave because they're bumping up against the religious community at that time. And then we see him start to bump up in little hints in Acts as well 
against the larger culture uh, outside of us. So there's a Christian who starts with the premise, the Bible's true. Should I believe this? Sure, that's fine. I, I think that's that's fine. I think the Bible's true. But on the other hand, I think the critical historian, and as far as I'm aware, most would accept this on the biblical record, and we only find strength from that outside of the scriptures as well. Mm. So maybe you could help kind of along these lines with her question with maybe that internal battle that someone might be having going, okay, look, you know, I, I believe the Bible. I believe it's God's word. But when you talk about Acts or you talk about Luke, you're, you're suggesting that we should be open to the idea that Luke did just make this up about Stephen. Um, how, do I, how do I handle this as I'm trying to look at a historical analysis of the data yeah. versus a, a, an idea of inspiration? Uh, what, do you, what would you say, like help people maybe process that? So this is a great question, and I can get myself into trouble sometimes because I can speak as a scholar versus speaking as a pastor. And there's not contradictions between them. There's just a way, a different way you may communicate in those audiences. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote The Fate of the Apostles, I'm not writing this just to evangelicals. It was first with Ashgate and then with Rutledge. It's not an evangelical press. It's a larger academic press. So I couldn't take for granted certain Christian evangelical beliefs like inspiration or even that Paul wrote all 13 letters that are attributed to him. So what I was trying to do academically is say, what's the minimum amount of claims that I have to make to see if the apostles die as martyrs mm -hmm. and to see if this is good part of a resurrection argument? So I actually even point towards 2 Timothy 4. Now, I believe 2 Timothy was actually written by Paul, and it's inspired. But a significant majority of scholars do not consider it one of the actual Pauline letters. They accept seven letters. Okay, fine. So I make the argument in the book. I say we have one of two options. When you look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering, which is a way of, way of saying I'm suffering so much and my life is being taken from me. Now, either Paul writes this. Because his suffering is so severe and he knows his life, his life is coming to an end as a result of it. Or Paul didn't write it and it's non-Pauline, but whoever wrote it knew the tradition was so strong about Paul that they had to insert those words on his lips or nobody would believe it. Either way, we have reason to believe there's a strong tradition at that time that Paul deeply suffered for his beliefs and it ended up costing him his life. Mm -hmm. So sometimes to your questioner, when I'm talking in the scholarly world, I will operate under certain principles that scholarship operates on because you cannot just bring Christian faith beliefs into that sphere. Doesn't mean I don't hold them. It simply means I'm saying, fine, these are the rules you operate from. Even given those rules, we can still advance a case for the apostles. So a lot of the research is in one sense kind of hypothetical for me saying, hey, fine, we'll assume critical scholarship is true. We still really have good reason to believe that Paul died as a martyr nonetheless. Yeah. It's, and I, I think that this is a, a challenge for a lot of people who are dealing with these topics and it's a natural thing. One thing that helps me a little bit is to think, okay, well, when you put on historian glasses, they can only see certain things just like when you put on uh, when you grab a metal detector, it can only discover certain things. And I wouldn't say the things it can't discover don't exist. And in the same sense that when the historian is doing historical analysis, what they can piece together 
that doesn't mean that inspiration shouldn't weigh into this. It, but it does mean that sure. in this discipline, they're they're filtering that out as a way of sort of refining the discipline. And and I I think that that is a it is potentially a can of worms for people to get into and do it. But um, but yeah, I yeah, think processing this it, is, is a challenge. Part here. of it, if if I can jump in, and you know, Candida holds a different view of an inerrancy, I assume. So she raises questions with Stephen. None of my case rests upon the the martyrdom of Stephen mm-hmm. or inerrancy. So for the sake of discussion of scholarship, I just concede it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I don't have a defense or a criticism of that point. Mm-hmm. But for the sake of what we're talking about, it's just not necessary and would be a side trail. Yeah. And and if I was trying to prove, you know, the resurrection of Christ, you do it through historical analysis. I don't want to have to also prove the inspiration of scripture unless that's somehow part of my case for the resurrection in that environment. But right. it doesn't mean I don't hold those truths or wouldn't want to convince someone of them. I think proving the inspiration of scripture would be a wonderful apologetic uh, approach mm-hmm. to uh, bringing people to Christ. So. All right. Well, Sean, um, there's uh, there was something else. What was it? Oh, yeah. Your book, your book, which is ten thousand dollars um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's it's from an academic press. Basically, they their books cost lots of money. And that was something you didn't even know when you were writing it that, that was going to be. Didn't. Yeah. But if, if people have a hard time getting it through Amazon or something, you, you mentioned another, another option for them. Well, I summed up the research in the updated version of Evidence That Demands a Verdict that I helped my father update. So there's a chapter in there that is concise that has all the references and you could go get that and then track down some of the sources and read them online yourself and come to your own conclusions. So that would be a place to start. Or the book, The Fate of the Apostles, I think paperback now is $50. When it first came out, it was like $120. Just the nature of academia. I felt terrible when I found that out. But I actually have a discount code about a third off, which is I think what I could get costs for. I can't post it online, but if somebody is like, you know what, I want to spend that and I want to read it for myself, if they email me just through my sh- through my site, seanmcdowell.org, I'd be happy to send them that discount code. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you. Um, any parting words for people? Anything you want to share before you head out? Oh, I just say I, I really enjoyed this. I If you really want to get to the bottom of this yourself, read The Fate of the Apostles and read The Myth of Persecution next to themselves and read them carefully, read them with an open mind and come to your own conclusions. Good stuff. Good stuff. And Sean is open to dialogue. If there's people out there that are informed on the topic and they want to have a dialogue with Sean, he's at least uh, potentially open if you're not uh, you know, a, a total jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for setting me up like that now officially. <laughs> you, got, you got it. At least potentially open. I know. There's Everybody and their grandma might try to take advantage of that. That's not the point. But um, informed, maybe scholars in particular, that would be great. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Thanks so much for joining. Um, I don't know what my next what my next video upload is going to be, but watch my channel, subscribe, click the little bell and all that so you guys can be informed. Still working on finishing up the study on uh, marriage, remarriage and divorce. Mm. Um, it's been nice. I've been I'm in the triple digits in the number of hours I'm spending researching and studying on this topic uh, to go into every conceivable related issue. And it's been um, a blessing. I enjoy it. But I think that the end result is going to hopefully be very fruitful for mm. the church. So. That's about all we got for tonight. God bless you guys. Thank you.